Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 2. Romans 2. Perhaps you have attended church from nine months before you were born. Uh, You memorized the verses in Awanas. Uh, You went to youth group. Somewhere along the lines, you got baptized. You prayed a prayer. Uh, And now you come to church on Sundays and serve the church in every way that you can. And you assume that because you're doing all of this, you're good with God. God's good with you. But as we examine the word, uh, we discover that you might just be relying on the wrong thing. All these actions that you do, they're wonderful, they're helpful, but they can't save you. Only faith in Christ through the gospel can save you. Your religion can't do it. It's been a couple weeks since we've looked at Romans, and as you may recall, in chapter 1, Paul presented a damning statement against our culture. And we we discovered really that our culture today is experiencing the wrath of God. Yet in chapter 2, Paul instructs us to be careful in our judgment because our own religion can't save us. And today, as we finish out chapter 2, we'll continue with that idea we looked at a couple weeks ago. Your religion can't save you. Let's look at verses 17 through the end of the chapter. Paul writes, But if you call yourself a Jew, and rely on the law, and boast in God, and know His will, and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law... And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of the knowledge of truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols... Do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have written, who have the written code in circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. As we end this chapter, we discover two more reasons why your religion can't save you. Paul begins by referencing the Jews. As Paul is writing this letter to the Romans, he addresses the Jews there in the church and the position that they believed that they had due to their birth. The Jews believed that because they were born Jews, they were good with God. They were God's people, therefore God loved them. 
And if they kept the law and obeyed God's precepts, God would bless them in their life. But even if they didn't do that, because they're Jews, they would be with God forever. (coughs) Excuse me. Often that's our feeling today. We're born in the church. We go to church. We do the God stuff. We memorize the Bible. We sit in the pew on Sunday. Maybe we serve the church in certain ways. And we believe that because we were born this way and because we serve this way, we're good with God. But Paul is writing them to say, there are two more reasons here why your religion can't save you. The first reason he gives us here is in verses 17 through 24. Your knowledge can't save you. Your knowledge can't save you. He says, you call yourself a Jew. You rely on the law. You you boast in God. You know his will. You approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law. You're sure. You're confident that you are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law in the law, the embodiment of truth and knowledge. Then he asks a number of damning questions. You who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you not do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law... dishonor God by breaking the law for it's written. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you from this. We see two really important things. One knowledge without obedience is worthless. You can know all about God. You can know all the Bible verses, but if you don't obey it, it's absolutely worthless. He tells them you rely on, On the law. The law was given to Moses there on Mount Sinai. Who brought it down to the children of Israel. And through a covenant with God. They promised God. We will obey this law. And God said I will bless you as you obey. And they believed. That because God gave them the law. Not to the Gentiles. Not to any other nation. But to the children of Israel. That they are the people of God. And they rely on that. You know today we rely on our spiritual rituals. We believe that because we go to church every Sunday, because maybe we pray to Diddy at some point, because we were baptized, because we do all these religious God stuff, we rely on those things for our salvation. He says you boast in God. You suppose that your your position as the people of God is what, what gives you value. And often we believe that because we are church people, We're God people. He says, you know, his will. God entrusted them with the Old Testament writings. And so they knew what God expected of them. And they approved what is excellent. They examined and tested what is worthwhile. They were instructed from the law. The Jews, from the time they were children, had been instructed in the word of God. And so they knew it inside and out. And as Paul writes this, Paul's own testimony as a Pharisee was that he knew the Bible inside and out. <coughs> Excuse me. He says, you're sure you are confident that you are an instructor of the foolish, a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness. 
He says, you're persuaded. You put your trust in this. And it's interesting that Paul uses the statement that you are sure the word you're sure that this is the case, not, you know, it's the case. It indicates it's their own conviction, not actually God given. But he says, you're confident. You're a guide to the blind. You're a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish and a teacher of children. Well, man, so when Paul states that the Jew was convinced that he was a guide to the blind and a light to those in darkness, we think of the duty of God's people to some degree, at least identified with Israel and with us to be a light to the nations, to open the eyes of the blind. You see, the Jew thought that the Gentile was ignorant, was blind, that he was a fool and didn't know anything. The Gentile was considered immature. Only a babe. So the Jew believed he had to, he had to get that blind Gentile and guide him and enlighten him and instruct him. But, but the problem is, as one man says, there's no one quite so blind as those who are confident they can see. Christ condemned them for this in Matthew 23. He said, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You know, so often religious people look with contempt at those around them, believe that they're foolish and blind and they can't see anything. And so it's my job to grab them and bring them. And, and indeed, we'll see in a moment, it is our job to be a light to the world. But the problem is we can only be a light if we're a light. If we take care of our own lives, if we walk with God and place our faith in Christ. The problem was these Jews were relying on their religion, not in Christ. They had in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Through the law, they had this, this rough sketch, this outline of, of what God expected of them. The problem is, Paul asks these questions. When you're teaching others, are you teaching yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. So as you're teaching others all these things. But do you obey it yourself? You know, we we condemn the world for its anger and its vitriol, for its foolishness, its inability to follow the truth. And then we respond the same way. Things don't go the way we want them to. And we get angry. We struggle with following the truth of the word and relying on that as our truth. We love to follow our traditions or our backgrounds or our political standings. It says, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? That word steal usually means to rob a temple, but it can also have the less precise meaning of, of committing sacrilege. But the idea here is he says, you, you preach to others about Stealing, and yet, yet you're doing the same thing yourself. One thinks of Malachi chapter 3. Will a man rob God? 
Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And God answers, in your tithes and contributions. We preach against stealing, and yet we're very stingy in our giving to God. We view perhaps our work in the church as our tithes and offerings and not actually giving our funds that God has blessed us with. And by doing that, we rob God of his money. Perhaps we think, you know, God's okay. He doesn't need that. I need it. But God calls us to give the first fruits of what we have. We're reminded of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The reality is we read about the mass shoplifting that has been taking place in some cities over the last week. We see some of the things that happened on Black Friday. And we look at that and say, can you believe those people? The way they're stealing And yet we hold back from God what is rightfully his. He says, you who say one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? We're reminded of Christ's statement in Matthew 5 that he who looks on a woman to lust after has committed adultery already in his heart. He says, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law? Reminded of Malachi 1. Again, the statement of God against the children of Israel. It says in verse 6, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food on my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you would might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name, a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it. When you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. But you say... What a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. And this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. 
Here God, through Malachi, condemns Israel. Because they're bringing sacrifice, they're offering to God. But they're doing it as an afterthought. They're bringing him the lame animals and the sick animals and the blind animals, not the best. We're reminded in our own life that we're to be giving God our best, the first of what we have. The question is, as you get paid and you get ready to lay it out, do you figure out everything else and then with what's left say, okay, now out of this, here's what I can give to God. Or is the first check you write to God and you trust God to take care of the rest? Are you taking care of your own life, making sure you're living at ease and giving God the afterthought in your service? Are you looking at all of the time that you have and filling it with everything and then saying, well, I've got just this little bit of time I can give to God because I'm so busy. Or do you start with God and say, God, here's what I can give you. Here's what I'm going to give you. And then plan everything else around that. So often I hear people say, I can't get in God's word. I just don't have the time. That's not true. You're just not making the time. Because you make time for what you truly value. And God is condemning Israel here. And Paul is condemning the Jews in Rome. Because... They're trusting in the fact that they're doing God's stuff. But it's an afterthought. And so he asks them, are you actually stealing from God? Are you robbing God? Are you committing adultery? I was reminded this week of a statement I've heard often among pastors. It's reminded by R.C. Sproul of this. He said, as Christians, we stand up and say it's wrong to steal. But the rule of thumb in pastor's circles is this. Do not ever count on receiving more than 80% of the pledges people make because people think nothing of not fulfilling their pleasures. It's a sad statement. See, our problem is that we don't feel the weight of serving God. We don't feel the weight of God's majesty. Instead, we feel the weight of this world. And you can have all the knowledge, but if it doesn't work out into obedience, it's worthless. James says, faith without works is dead being alone. The question is, are you taking that knowledge and living it out? Or are you content just to sit on a pew on Sunday and take a little bit more in and forget it the rest of the week? This is really important because we see, secondly, that hypocrisy causes blasphemy. Paul concludes in verse 24, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Here, Paul quotes the prophets and he notes that the Gentiles were blaspheming God for the way the Jews were treating them. Noted before, unbelievers often say, I won't go to church because the church is filled with hypocrites. And we kind of scoff at that and say, well, everybody's a hypocrite. But the reality is there's some truth to what they say. Oftentimes, God's name is disdained among the county because of the way the church acts. When we don't act like Christians, when we don't live out the word... It causes 
God's name to be blasphemed. By their conduct, they had disgraced the God they professed to worship. One man said, what a man says is worth nothing unless it has come into his own life and has been worked out there in righteousness and service for God. You see, Christ told us in Matthew 5 that we are the light of the world. He says in verse 14 of Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. We're reminded that we are the light to the world. We are the way that God has chosen to demonstrate his glory and his goodness to a lost and dying world. It is through his church and his people that he does this. And how is this accomplished? He says, so that they may see your good works. The reality is God is calling on each and every one of us to live out our faith Monday through Sunday. All week long to act on it, not simply to say, yes, I believe that God is sovereign and that God's in control and God will provide for my needs. But yeah, I don't know that I can give. I don't know that I can supply these needs because God might not cover it. We can't say, I love God. I think he's worth it. But man, can you believe these politicians? I mean, I know God's sovereign, but he's lost control of this here. We got to get this right. What do we say to a lost world when we do that? We say our words are worthless. But when we live it out, when we trust God and we serve those around us, we see needs and we meet needs, not just of people in our church, but of our neighbors and our coworkers. And we express joy and thanksgiving year round. And we point to God in all things. And when things don't go our way, we say, God is still good. We point the world to the world, the gospel of Christ. And we say, what we say is what we actually believe. You see, your knowledge can't save you. Just because you come to church and know the Bible does not mean that you're good. When we fail to live out the truth, we prove that our faith is dead. That it's not true faith because it's alone. But secondly, we see that your religious pedigree can't save you. Verse 26 or verse 25. He says, for circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have written the written code in circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God." Now, let's just be honest for a moment. This is kind of an odd, awkward section. He talks about circumcision and uncircumcision. But God chose that sign of circumcision as a sign of his people for a reason. 
God did not tell the children of Israel in order to show that you are my people, you must all start wearing some sort of a hat or badge or something that demonstrates that you are a Jew. Instead, they chose a sign that no one wants to see. Why? To demonstrate that it's not about what you see, but about what's actually going on in the heart that springs forth into the life. And so he tells them pedigree without hypocrisy or pedigree with hypocrisy reveals inauthenticity. In other words, you can be born with all the right family, but if you're hypocritical, it reveals your faith is fake. They thought that because they were born as Jews, as people of God, they were going to spend eternity with God. And while their actions might cause reward them to lose rewards here on earth, because they were born as God's people, they would never forfeit heaven. It was a guarantee. They were just born with it as a birthright. But Paul seeks to relieve them of this notion. You know, sometimes we might think because you were born into a Christian family or frankly, as it's becoming more and more uh, happens more and more because you were simply born into your family. You're good. But Paul and I have a message for you today. Your family isn't that special. Pedigree with hypocrisy reveals inauthenticity. They didn't get this. You see, it's not about your religious pedigree. It's not about your family. It's about your faith. Jesus addressed this with the Jews in John 8. In verse 33, it says, They answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is the slave to sin. They were saying to Jesus, listen, you're saying we need to be free, but, but listen, we're Jews. We've never been enslaved to anyone. Now, that statement on its head seems absolutely ludicrous because we know Jews' history. Never been enslaved to anyone. Egypt, Babylon, Persia, Assyria, the Philistines. But that's fine. Okay. But what were they saying? No, we're, we're God's people. Even though we might for a time be enslaved to people, God always frees us because we're his people. We're good. And Jesus says, you don't get it. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. You might have been born as the quote-unquote people of God, but unless they had faith in the Messiah, they were not people of God, but slaves to sin. One man says, this situation has a parallel among religious people today too. 
The man who trusts in the right of baptism and membership in the Christian church will face a heightened guilt and condemnation in the eyes of God. His contact with the doctrines of Christianity increases his responsibility. You see, according to Scripture, a person who's raised in a Christian home and trained in a Christian environment is not saved by his heritage or his pedigree or his family. Valuable as that is. Baptism. Religious actions, they, they don't possess or bestow spiritual benefit apart from true faith. And apart from true faith, no ritual or ceremony has any spiritual benefit whatsoever. You're just wasting your time. In fact, one man said, baptism is not a sacrament and without faith, it becomes a sacrilege. The problem is we're measuring things by the wrong standard. We think that because we are who we are and we're, we're, we're in this religious zone, we're good. And we look at the world and we look at the things going on in the world and we measure ourselves against that. And we figure we're not that. So we're good. And often people take on a, a, a nature to hide who they really are. And they present that as their real nature. This is who I am. And we, I call it our Sunday person. We know what it's like. You're in the car or you're getting ready to go and you're taking your time. Someone's not ready yet. And so you start letting them know it's time to go. What's your problem? And you get in the car and you begin to express your excitement with one another about the fact that you're late. With a little bit of volume, maybe some hand motions for emphasis sake. But something miraculous happens the moment you turn into the parking lot. And the spirit of God washes over your being. And you're righteous. And you come in and you smile. And people ask you, how are you doing? Oh, bless God. I'm so good. Is God being okay to you today? Oh, God is so good. And you sit in the service. And you listen. And you sing. And you pray. And then you get in the car and something de-miraculous happens as you exit the parking lot. And you begin to share with one another how excited you are about how you were late today. And how they needed to listen to what was said in church today. See, we don this picture in front of other people of what we're like and we measure ourselves by everybody else. But the problem is we need to measure ourselves by God. 2 Corinthians 10, 12 says, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are condemning themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. They're using the wrong measuring stick. And Paul is pointing the way to salvation by showing the Jews that their position, despite their covenant privileges, is essentially no different from that of the Gentiles. Disobedience brings condemnation. Faith and obedience brings salvation. What's he saying? You can come to church. You can do all your God stuff. But if it is not rooted in faith in Christ, you're wasting your time. Because on the other side, faith without pedigree is still authentic faith. 
Verse 27, then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have written the code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. He was saying this. You're not a Jew. You're not a person of God because you're born that way. You're a person of God because God dwells in your heart by faith. Now, today, as I say that, that's not a scandalous statement. But as Paul said that, this was a scandalous statement. A Gentile who came to God in faith was a child of God, while the Jew who relied on his birth was not a child of God. In fact, in John 8, as as we looked at it before, it continues on in verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The reality is. The Jews had a massive problem with this. As you read through the, God, uh, the, the Acts of the Apostles in the book of Acts, Paul would go into a city. And we think of him going into, for instance, Thessalonica. And he goes into the city of Thessalonica and he goes into the synagogue for three weeks and teaches the Jews about the gospel and they don't receive him. A handful do, most don't. And after they reject it, then he goes to the Gentiles. And many of the Gentiles accepted Christ. And that's when the Jews had a problem. While he was teaching them in the, in the synagogue and saying it, they were okay with it. They didn't agree with him. They thought he was wrong, but they'd debate him and everything was fine. But the moment he went to the Gentiles and said, you can become people of God, they had a problem. Why? Because they believed only those born that way are people of God. Often in the church, we act this way. Only those of us who were born into the church who've been here forever can be God's people. And we're happy when some visit, but that's what they will always be is just visitors because they're not truly the people of God like we are because we were born into this. But the reality is those who don't have the pedigree but come to God in faith, they're the ones with authentic faith because faith is demonstrated by their life. You see, it's not your religious actions or your religious family that grants you a relationship with God. One only comes to a relationship with God through faith. And Paul is laying this foundation as he begins the gospel message that all people are lost in sin. And this is where he's going to go in Romans chapter 3. That there is none righteous. There's none that understand. There's none that seek after God. They're all gone out of the way. They're together become unprofitable. There's none that does good, not even one. But God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. <clears throat> Excuse me, to take our sin on himself. To become, as 1 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, to become sin for us who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And this happens in Romans 10 when we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. When we come to him in true faith and give him our life and live for him, that is when salvation comes. It's not through your birth. 
It's not through your baptism. As I said two weeks ago, you can be baptized so many times, you know every fish by its first name, and all that will happen is you'll go to hell wet. It comes through faith, by grace, giving God your life and submitting to Him. That is where true salvation comes. Too often, churches are filled with people who rely on their religious actions to secure their relationship with God. They believe that because they're good people, they're good with God. And too often, they look at the world around them and compare themselves to it, but it's the wrong comparison. You have to compare yourself to God's perfection. And just because you come to church does not mean you're okay. And just because you grew up in church does not mean you're okay. You must make Jesus the Lord of your life and submit to Him in faith. Only then are you a true child of God. So you have to ask, what makes you believe that you're okay with God? What are you relying on to ensure your eternal life? Your religion can't save you. Let me conclude with four so what's. Four things for you to walk away with today. Number one. Don't rely on your knowledge of God to gain a relationship with him. Don't simply rely on the knowledge. Yeah, I, I know that God exists. I know that he's God. I believe he's God. James tells us you believe there's one God. Good for you. The demons also believe that and tremble. It's not just about your knowledge. Number two, don't rely on your family religious history to gain a relationship with God. Just because your grandparents were saved and your parents were saved and you went to church and your kids go to church, you're good. It's not what it's about. Instead, number three, come to God in faith and surrender to Christ as your Lord. You have to do it for yourself. You have to come to the place where you recognize that you are a sinner and cannot save yourself and no good works can do it. Only the cross of Christ can do it and submit and surrender wholly to him. So then number four, examine yourself to ensure that you are a child of God. Don't just assume it. Paul tells us in Philippians, work out your salvation. Live it out, test it, ensure that it is what it is. So that you can know that you'll spend an eternity with him. We need the gospel. We need Christ. So that we can live righteous lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for the opportunity that you have given us to look at your word, to know that you are a good God, to understand that we cannot come to salvation on our own and that our, our righteous deeds are worthless if they're not found in the blood of Christ. So, Lord, I pray that each and every one of us would look at our lives to ensure that we have submitted ourselves wholly and completely to you, that we trust in the, in the sacrifice of your son for our salvation. And that we're living it out. Thank you for who you are. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.